My Govanen, welcome to Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and for the first time ever on this channel, I'm actually hosting another YouTuber for a conversation. Some of you may know that I was on the Clueless Fangirls uh, web channel for one of her videos a while back, but it wasn't posted on my channel. This one, I'm actually hosting, and this is going to be on my channel, so this is a first for me, and it's Technology's weird, folks. It's I'm 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 not a zoomer. This is weird. So if we have glitches, it's probably my fault. So with that caveat out of the way, the topic of this video is going to be Tolkien and the critics. Now there may be more than one of these videos that we end up doing, and Girl Girl Next Gondor and I are doing for this video mainly critics who were mostly contemporary, but were at least criticizing something about the literature aspect of Tolkien's work, and specifically Lord of the Rings. We're not looking into criticisms of, you know, racism, sexism, any of that kind of stuff. This is purely like looking at the work as literature and its failings as such. So it's going to be interesting. Um, there's at least at one other video we could do on this topic, probably at least two more. In fact, there's a, if any of you have read the book, the um, author of the century by Tom Shippey, he has an entire chapter in one of the later editions dedicated to critics. And we're not even touching most of the critics that he talks about in that chapter. So we may end up making a whole video out of that too. But for now, we're going to be looking at some of the ones that I've kind of put together from contemporaries who criticized it at the time it came out and, you know, really looked at it in terms of just the literature of the thing. With that said, we're going to start off with one. And this is one that actually I didn't even know about until I got, uh, my wife got me a, a CD set called the tales from the perilous realm, which I didn't even know existed. The BBC, not only did they do a radio dramatization of the Lord of the Rings, they did radio dramatizations of, uh, Farmer Giles of Ham, Smith of Wooten Major. Um, they actually went back and did like the Tom Bombadil chapters that they didn't do for the Lord of the Rings adaptation. And they also had like a kind of like a, a mini documentary type thing where they interviewed people about Tolkien and did that kind of thing. And in this, there was a critic named John Kerry. And no, not the American political candidate from back, you know, about a dozen years or so. Well, gosh, it's more than a dozen years by now. Anyway, uh, this guy is definitely a British guy, and he had some interesting criticisms about Lord of the Rings that I want to lead this off with. So, you ready, Girl Next Gondor? I think I am. I'm happy to be on the channel. All right. So, John Kerry's criticism was that the Lord of the Rings was a book for children, and he gave two rationales for this. One was that its morals are simplistic, and he went into, you know, like the good guys are always good, you know, the good little boys come home from war, and the bad guys are irredeemably evil, and there's really not a whole lot of moral gray in Tolkien's universe. And the second half of his criticism, why it's a children's book, is that the book does not address the topic of sex, eroticism, sensuousness, any of that type of thing. So that was the, the crux of his argument for why Lord of the Rings is a children's book. Now, I have my own thoughts on why both criticisms are absurd, but I want to get your thoughts first. What do you have to say in response to both of those? So um, I, I think I have three points. Um, the first thing I want to kind of suggest, and I, I understand that this may not have exactly been Carrie's point, uh, how old were you when you finished Lord of the Rings? And how many tries did it take you? <laughs> Be because I was definitely, I mean, I was 11 or 12 and I was like, you know, the nerdy little girl who read well above her reading level and was already into the, you know, the upper grade work. So, and I, you know, I couldn't get through. It took me, I think, five tries to get through Fellowship, and the only reason I made it past the Council of Elrond was because the bathroom flooded and I couldn't leave my room for two hours. So, um, yeah, it was, it was so that, and then after that, it was I was just gone. I think I finished the rest of them in about two days. Um, but yeah, it's like if it's a 
if it's a book for children, it's it's not really a, a particularly easy read. So, and I get that he means perhaps more thematically and morally, but but still to say that it's not you know a complex or challenging piece of literature just on the very uh, superficial level that argument doesn't really hold. Um, the simplistic morality one comes up a lot, and it seems it's it persists. You know, people will talk about like, oh yes, and Lord of the Rings, and it was of course a, a groundbreaking genre defining book but it's it has its failings and one of them is that oh the morality is so simplistic whereas you know uh, that that lovely modern classic a song of ice and fire has such you know more realistic and and much more compelling character narrative arcs um i don't i don't hate george rr R. martin i just wish that that some things had gone differently there um <laughs> just i'm gonna tactfully leave it there um <laughs> this this criticism always confuses me because it's like have these people read the book that that have they exactly my response half the time have have they i mean just to take uh, let's grab a couple of guys out here so um aragorn cannot get his act together to save his life um until about halfway through book two or so not book two it would be probably halfway through book three halfway through the two towers the second i guess volume if you're reading it in the chopped up form um so he makes a ton of just poor judgment calls uh and they, they turn out all right in the end but he really struggles with that uh frodo is supposedly a good guy but fails in the end massively decides that he'd rather you know sacrifice all of his friends and the any hope of there being lasting goodness in the world for the sake of personal power Not um end either i mean he fails a couple of times just before he gets to Bree. oh yeah yeah I, he's I, I, I kind of I tend to attribute those more, I guess, to just, uh, you know, more ignorance and inexperience than like actual moral decay. But he is he's supposed to be our protagonist and he's supposed to he does have the moral high ground for much of the book. Um, and Tolkien's whole point is to put a basically good character protagonist into a position where at the end he cannot possibly succeed in making the moral choice. Right. So to me, that seems pretty... Um, pretty complicated and not at all a clear clear cut story of good protagonist defeats evil bad guy and then uh yeah for the the lack of sex and eroticism i've read like five or six adult mass market books in the past year that had very little in the way you know they were just they were stories about other things they were stories about people who for whatever reason were not pursuing a relationship as their primary goal in life at that point or if they were, it was not important to the plot or theme to really go in depth in that. Um, so the fact that, you know, there's no explicit sex in the books, that, should that disqualify it for me? You know, do all adult books have to have explicit eroticism? This is this is a new phenomenon for me. Some yeah. can, some do. But but to say that all of them, that, that that's, you know, a qualifying a qualifying feature that must must be present it's odd it doesn't it, it seems odd yeah well and kind of taking your points in reverse order there that you're kind of hang, hanging right around the edges of one of the thoughts that i had about the whole sex and eroticism point which was if you're thinking that all adult level literature has to deal with that topic it seems like you're really not so much an adult as an adolescent because adolescents are the ones who are really the ones obsessed with that topic all the time. Like when you're having raging hormones as a teenager, that's when you're thinking about it all the time, not necessarily when you're an adult. So it it just seemed kind of odd to me that that would be, you know, a criticism of something as a non-adult thing. And then another point along those lines too, you mentioned that you've read several adult you know, literature or whatever, but, you know, I mean, think of even some of the great literature that nobody would dispute would be, you know, definitely not children's literature, literature. Like I haven't read any Dostoevsky, but I know enough about several of his stories that they're clearly not children's literature, but they're also not really about eroticism or sex. They're about, you know, the moral struggles of humans and how they deal with issues. I mean, you've got, stories like crime and punishment and the brothers Karamazov and, you know, none of these that I've read, but I know the synopsis versions of them. 
And it's like, there may be issues that arise in them that are tangential to the story that deal with eroticism and sex, but the central crux of the story is not. And you could, I mean, it just like, in what world do we think that all adult literature or, you know, even movies or anything like that has to be dealing in some way with sex and, you know, a good example of, you know, even movies saving private Ryan is clearly an adult movie. And it's clearly a movie about things that adults have to deal with and that children should not really ever have to deal with, but there's not a scintilla of anything erotic in it. I mean, there's nothing touching on that, but it's, would anybody claim that it's a children's movie because of that? I mean, that just seems silly. Um, so yeah. And then going back to your second point about the, the simplistic morality, one of the interesting things about the story, and this goes to your point about, you know, has anybody, have these people actually <laughs> read the story? Uh, the fact is you have characters like Saruman, Denethor, uh, I'm trying to remember some of the other ones that are clearly kind of sort of morally gray. Like Saruman is not irredeemably bad. Even Gollum is not irredeemably bad. If we're going to take Gandalf seriously, Gandalf thinks there may be hope for Gollum's cure. He thinks that there's probably not much chance that he can turn Saruman around, but he thinks that there's a chance Mm -hmm. and he tries. And based on Saruman's reaction and his conversation with Gandalf, he obviously struggles himself. Boromir is a guy who ends up being a good guy, but clearly fails and then redeems himself. I mean, none of these characters are really just a hundred percent straight. Good. Even Sam who, you know, most people would look to as like the paragon of virtue in the story, maybe in terms of protagonists, you know, has his failings. Like he, may be the reason that Gollum is not in the end, you know, kind of redeemed himself because he treats him too harshly right in the moment where Gollum is on the verge of repenting of betraying Frodo and Sam to Shelob. So, I mean, all these characters have their problems. Even Faramir, who's my favorite character, has his daddy issues that, you know, give him a little bit of a gray area there. So, I mean, there's nothing in this story that's clearly just, I mean, yes, you have the overarching, these are clearly the good guys on the good side, and these are clearly the bad guys on the bad side. But those two things do not rule out the existence of moral grayness. So, Yeah, I, I think what people confuse a lot, if I can kind of ju- jump in, is um, there is an absolute morality in Middle-earth. There, there are actions which are clearly good under all circumstances and actions that are clearly bad under all circumstances, and then there's a bunch of sort of distinctions between those two. Um, but none of the characters, even, you know, Sauron himself is not necessarily... You know, at one point in the book, yeah, we have that line, nothing is evil in the beginning, even Sauron was not so. Um, and then, of course, in the letters afterward, um, sort of the extended universe um histories of middle earth the the sort of ancillary writings um clearly sauron had good like admirable qualities and um and like you said you know saruman Gollum, even i guess you know there's a lot of debate about the orcs but the orcs kind of you know show flickers of what appears to be potentially an independent will and then on the other side you've got um the quote good guys who are trying to perform the good action which is to resist sauron and put aside their personal pettiness and desires and unite and come together and defeat evil essentially personalized evil but none of those characters are capable of 100 percent moral actions 100 percent of the time you know, even the best characters make make judgment you know failures and and uh you know, Gandalf and Denethor, I think. So, you know, Denethor clearly a gray character where he you can he has sympathetic motivations and he's trying to do his best. And um, but Gandalf, even Gandalf the White, that we consider to be like as close to an angelic moral figure as we get in Lord of the Rings, um, says, Yeah, I think I kind of screwed up with Denethor. You know, I should have maybe I should have realized what was going on. And if I had, maybe I would have handled it differently and we could have avoided this whole mess. Um, so yeah, definitely. I mean, I think people confuse the fact that there are 
absolutely good and absolutely evil actions or judgments that you can make. Um, they confuse that with the characters having the ability to make act, you know, the characters will be absolutely good or absolutely bad. And that's, that's, of course, it's the opposite. I mean, I think that's antithetical to what Tolkien's trying to say. Right. Yeah. And actually um, one of the, I've done a video previously that relates heavily to this topic, which is on the idea of lawbreaking in middle earth. And I give several examples. Uh, Aomer, when he first meets Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli, I think I threw in the instance of Baragon, you know, having to break the law in order mm-hmm. to stop Denethor from killing Faramir. And there's other examples where characters have to really address the issue of like, do I adhere to the strict letter of the law or do I do what I think is right? Even though there's some risk in that, even on its own terms. And so just on that level alone, there's clearly a lot of moral struggle even if not grayness and so to me that's just that's one of the silliest criticisms of the book as a whole because like you said it's just really misconstruing you know what is there is such a thing as absolute good and evil versus every character is good and evil and there's really never any kind of like hard decisions to make it's like yeah where the whole book is about making hard decisions it's like did did they read it yeah that's what it comes down to. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that's going to be a theme for like most of these criticisms. So speaking of which, moving on to the next one, there's a Valentine Cunningham criticized. Well, criticized is, I'm not sure exactly if this is a criticism or if it was just an observation, but he's another one that came up in the tales of the perilous realm uh, interviews uh, but he said that hobbits are boys who enjoy adolescent things like food, beer, tobacco, fireworks, and gifts. And at one level, maybe that is just an observation, but the way he kind of couched it made me think that he was criticizing it as if hobbits are just kind of like, um, what, what's the, I forget the term, but like basically it's your ability to just kind of indulge in a fantasy of what you would ideally like to be, you know, if you could just have whatever you wanted sort of like a wish fulfillment thing. Yeah. That's the, yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Um, so, you know, if, if we're, and I don't know that that was his intent for sure, but assuming that it was, do you have any thoughts on that one? Well, again, on the one hand, I think there's a bit of justice in that. Um, especially since we are, the book itself kind of sets up this model where, the Hobbit characters themselves, when we start out, even Frodo, who's, you know, old enough, he should know better, but I I blame the ring. Um, he's kind of in this sort of extended youth period where he hasn't really had to take on any serious responsibilities yet. He hangs out with, you know, his mostly his younger cousins and his friends. Um, you know, he lives alone. He's had his inheritance has kind of been given to him. And, and then, of course, Merry and Pippin and Sam are all quite a bit younger than him. Uh, so in the beginning of Fellowship of the Ring, they do have that sort of adolescent quality. They haven't really grown up yet, which, you know, the protagonist at the beginning of an epic million word novel is not going to is, is going to show a little immaturity. It's called, you know, character development. Right. And by the end of it, we can see that they've all grown and matured quite a bit and they've all had their little moment of crisis and overcome it. Um but hobbits in general, I think, you know, this goes back to um, the Shire kind of being construed as this idyllic pastoral, like, wonderland. And in a way, it it is. It's meant to represent something. It's meant to represent, like, the fantasy of home for the characters while they're out adventuring so that they have something to sort of remind themselves of what is civilization and what is decency and what's worth fighting for. Um, but, of course, we get complicated on that a little bit because of a couple of things the scouring of the shire chapter obviously where where the hobbits come home to their you know idyllic little pristine little countryside and it's been taken over in part because the hobbits were they either were you know too self-serving or too conflict avoidant uh, or just not prepared to face Saruman and a handful of human, mostly human ruffians, um, because of course, as soon as Merry and Pippin and Sam and kind of Frodo from the back um, rally them, they very quickly overthrow and kick everyone out. 
and it it's accomplished pretty quickly as soon as someone's there to kind of give them a kick in the yeah. in the rear and get them moving uh so we can see that um that's really clearly shows that the Shire itself was not a perfect society. It was corruptible. And uh, going back and rereading the first couple chapters, um, long, long awaited party, long expected party, and uh, the one that comes after that, where we're really focused on the Shire and its goings on and its society, uh, knowing that I believe Tolkien kind of had a a thing for Jane Austen. He, he, if I'm remembering correctly, he appreciated uh, some of Austen's work. It reminds me a lot of an Austen novel, uh, where on the surface it's all very sparkling and funny and haha and comedy of manners, but there's real like some of those hobbits get mean. You know, the way Mary is treated in particular is just kind of appalling, um, and that's and that's just you know we don't dwell on it and we don't spend a lot of time there, but we can already see that you know the Hobbit society with its beer and its um, gifts and its adventures and all that kind of thing and the stay-at-homeness of it and the sort of resistance to change um tolkien himself critiques that not just by the end of the book but even in the beginning of the book it's there there's this uh, undercurrent that you can see that you know they're setting up for their own downfall at least on a second reread it seems it kind of pops out at you a little bit more when you know how it ends yeah well i mean and there's there's definitely not so subtle hints even in the very beginnings because Frodo even tells Gandalf, like, I think an invasion of dragons would do them good. Not knowing, of course, <laughs> that he wouldn't get an invasion of dragons exactly, but he would get, you know, more or less the equivalent in the form of Saruman taking over the Shire and ruining it. And, you know, it, one of the things that I think is also important to note here on this particular criticism is that the the focus on, you know, food and drink and tobacco and all these things that the, the hobbits love so much is it kind of harks back to what Thorin tells Bilbo at the very end of the Hobbit, right on his deathbed, where he says, if more of us valued food and cheer and song over hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. And so Tolkien is telling us there that if we would all just be content with the simple pleasures of life, things would probably be a lot better, but greed tends to get in the way. But what he also tells us in the Lord of the Rings, and this comes from, I think it's the mouth of Halbarad, the um, ranger, when he tells Aragorn, or maybe he's talking to one of the other characters, uh, and he's talking about the fact that they've been defending the Shire, you know, they're strange folk and they don't know what we're doing for them, but I wouldn't have it any other way. And this is a callback to when Aragorn I think at the Council of Elrond basically says, you know, they all are completely unaware, unaware of their danger. But if, you know, simple folk are protected from the outside world, simple they will be. Uh, or he may have actually been referring to Bree in that instance. I can't remember. But so if you start putting all these dots together, you can see Tolkien at one level extols the virtues of the hobbits in that they value those things but he also kind of recognizes that those things if you overindulge in them and you don't think of anything beyond them you do leave yourself open to pretty serious problems like the scouring of the shire if everybody for instance in the shire had been more like you know farmer cotton and the tooks and the brandy bucks who were more resistant to the incursion there probably never would have been a takeover of the Shire in the first place, but most of the Shire were as, you know, Frodo tells Gandalf kind of stupid and just, you know, not very interested in anything very serious. And so Tolkien definitely gives his own criticism of the same exact thing. So to the extent that it's a criticism from a literary perspective, it mis it misses the fact that Tolkien himself is criticizing the behavior within his own story, I think. Yeah, almost nothing that Tolkien presents, even the elves are, um, within the stories themselves, they're all subject to a certain amount of critique or, you know, pointing out how there are flaws inherent in everything. You know, you say, okay, well, the Shires is too simple and too rustic, and what we really need is to be more like, you know, the Noldor, and we're always pursuing knowledge, and we're really trying to engage with the world. Well, that has its risks as well potentially potentially yeah <laughs> potentially worse than yeah i don't know would you rather like 
you know, be in the Shire during Saruman's takeover or um, live in Eregion during the middle of the Second Age. I, I don't know. It's a toss-up. Just kidding. It's not a toss-up. It's not a toss-up at all. In, in hindsight, it's not a toss-up. No. <laughs> That's true. I mean, you would get probably higher, higher uh, you know, life, quality of life in uh in Eregion for a few years there and then uh, that would rapidly deteriorate so yeah it, so basically you know there's one thing that tolkien is pretty consistent about is nothing taken to an extreme or taken to excess is good there is good in almost everything but there is also the potential for it to be either a weakness or a flaw or a or a crime a breaking of some sort of moral law yeah so let's see next we have a peter green and this is most of the ones from here on out I took from the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, where he specifically, like, it, it gives notes before a lot of the letters where Tolkien kind of responds to some of them, and the notes tell what the criticisms were, or some of them I just found online. Uh, but Peter Green uh, said, I presume it is meant to be taken seriously, and I'm apprehensive that I can find no really adequate reasons for doing so. And yet this shapeless work has an undeniable fascination, especially to a reviewer with a cold in his head. Uh, <laughs> now, on the one level, this criticism is void of concrete content because mm -hmm. it's, he's, he calls it a shapeless work, but it's really kind of his criticism that's kind of shapeless because there's nothing really to latch on there. But do you have any particular thoughts on the idea that it's, that there's no real reason to take the book seriously and that the story is shapeless. Well, I think, and this is kind of something that I have to face myself um, late at night, hunched over the blue glow of the computer screen, scrolling through my YouTube comments once more. Um, <laughs> and I think to myself, they're made up elves. Why do we all care so much? You know, why are we arguing over, you know, well, El Elrond would never do that. How do you know what Elrond would do? Elrond isn't real, guys, at least not on primary reality. Right. Um, and, and one of the hallmarks, of course, of Middle-earth generally, Lord of the Rings, and then obviously the Silmarillion Unfinished Tales and going forward into many, many volumes of just additional material and little factoids about the elvish word for light being related to the elvish word for liquid and you know the the sound changes of course the infamous sound changes um why spend so much time fleshing out the details and the histories and the languages and the culture and you know i'm getting into like elvish sign language and how it would have differed from dwarvish sign language and some of the later stuff it's like why um especially well, we know why he focused on language <laughs> well we know why he, well and yeah and and the easy answer is well because it was fun for him you know it was a diversion it was uh something he had a passion for and this was sort of how he expressed it artistically and a lot of people obviously resonate with it very strongly which is i guess the simplest response to this criticism is there's there's clearly something there to latch on to yeah even the reviewer himself said that okay you know i was kind of bored I was stuck at home and sick, but I, I couldn't really look away, even though I kept asking myself, why am I, why am I getting invested in this? So, um, I mean, you could take that from an artistic angle. Um, Tolkien has essays that kind of hint that he sees value in creation just for its own sake and, you know, verisimilitude um, as something that if you commit yourself to it is a worthy endeavor in its own right. There's also the fact that by making it so complex, we get you know, the ability to have those multiple shades of meaning that rewards rereading and further study. And, you know, every time you read it, you kind of take away something different. Um, it, what we've been talking about in the past, the past couple of criticisms that we've addressed about how it's maybe lacks complexity or you know, oversimplifies this, or, you know, these people only care about X, Y, or Z. Um, a lot of that doesn't work because middle earth is so complex because there's so much history there and so much context to take into account that's what makes it possible for all of these really subtle distinctions to come forward yeah well and another thing too um uh, in terms of just the 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 at the level of taking the story seriously he says he can't find a reason to do it and 
in fairness, I should note that when when he made this criticism, it was specifically after the fellowship had been released before the two towers and the return of the king. Mm-hmm. And so he hadn't read the entire story. Um, so he hadn't gotten through, you know, most of the uh, the resolves of so many of the things that were set up, not only in terms of just the resolve of the plot, but even in terms of like the level at which, you know, Frodo's character grows, Sam's character grows. I mean, Sam, by the time you get to the end of the first book has not really changed much as a character at all. It's really in the two towers and the return of the King that Sam comes into his own. So the idea that there's not much to take seriously. Okay. If you're only reading the fellowship of the ring, maybe I could understand that criticism but then why would you criticize it at that level if you haven't read the whole story yet anyway? And the same goes for the shapelessness of the work. It's like, well, you haven't seen the whole thing. There is no shape that you, you can't see the whole shape because you're only seeing a third of it. You know, <laughs> there's, there's stuff missing. Uh, but even just within the terms of the Fellowship of the Ring itself, you can clearly tell that there's a very definite progression that this story is going to have that there's a lot of really, you know, deep and thoughtful stuff going on in it. Because, I mean, even at the Council of Elrond, besides the exposition dump, which I'm one of those weird people that loves the exposition dump, but even aside from that, when they come down to debating what they're going to do with the ring at the very end, you can tell there's some real moral reasoning and, and thought process about, how to deal with a really weighty problem like that. And so when he says he can't find any reason to take it seriously, to me, that strikes me as what, and this is me trying to read his mind, which is maybe a bit unfair, but it Mm -hmm. sounds like the kind of criticism that you would get from somebody who just has no real interest in fantasy and thinks it's all a waste of time. It's like, give me a good hard nosed, you know, realistic novel. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with realistic novels, but, one of the beauties of fantasy and science fiction as well is that you can do things and explore things with those kinds of stories much more directly than you can in a, in a more realistic type of story. So in even in just the fellowship of the ring, there's enough there, I think that you could definitely pull out something to say, yeah, there's, you know, there's real reasons to read this book. It's not just, you know, what if there were elves and there were a dark Lord and what, you know, what kind of weird things might happen. It's not that simple. There's real thought behind it. And because there's real thought behind it, you should expect that there's going to be even more really serious stuff to latch onto and reasons to be fascinated, so to speak. Yeah. It's, um, kind of goes back to the old applicability versus allegory chestnut that people quote and misquote all over the place. Um, Because it is set in this highly detailed, made-up period in history, I guess, you know, if we're going to be very specific to Tolkien envisioning it at least at one point as a made-up period of time in our own, basically, world or Earth. Yeah. what you know why why make why make something up when you could write a story about i mean i'm sure he knew enough about medieval history or um post classical history to write a historical novel if that was his if that was his leaning but he set it in he set this this problem of what do we do with questions of power and morality and mortality and death and um and you know lack of death in the case of the elves what would what do we do with the question of life um that seems to extend without any sort of point it's all set in this fantasy realm which means that he's not bound by what actually happened or what actually could happen um and therefore he can set up scenarios that are really timeless uh they apply to multiple scenarios everything from should i let the little old lady finish crossing the street before i complete my left turn or um you know what great political decision that I am faced with should I make? Things like that, uh, all the way from from the macro to the micro level across time and space and on into infinity. You know, because it's set in something that's so 
removed from quote primary reality it has almost infinite applicability yeah all right and here's another one that is again directed specifically at the fellowship of the ring and this is from edwin muir who by the way ah uh, yes uh, so <laughs> get ready for the follow-up on this one um but specifically as to the fellowship edwin muir said the fellowship of the ring is an extraordinary book yet for myself i could not resist feeling a certain disappointment perhaps this was partly due to the style which is quite unequal to the theme but perhaps it was due more to a lack of the human discrimination in depth, which the subject demanded. So he thinks the style doesn't fit the theme and that the, there's a lack of human discrimination in depth, which is demanded by the subject, which again, I would, I wonder in what sense he even means that considering he hadn't read the other two thirds of the work, but given what we have right. to work with, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the style question is interesting because what style is he talking about? Um, this is perhaps most visible in Fellowship of the Ring, where we go from Three is Company and the Bath Songs to Tom Bombadil, and then we're into the Barrow, and then we're back to Bree, and then we're at the Council of Elrond, and then we're on the road. And um, it's just, it's kind of mood and style whiplash because he goes to that high style, the more removed one. And then he drops us back down into the hobbits, who are at this point like at their most hobbitish, their most adolescent, if you will, uh, to refer back to the earlier criticisms. Um, and he does this often. Clearly, it's quite intentional to play up or play down or um, juxtapose certain themes. So, um, yeah. So I, I guess without without further information from Muir, I would uh, not be able to properly respond to this critique because. There are multiple styles at play, um, often very deliberately trying to serve the themes, um, different themes. Uh, so I would need more details. What what style is he referring to and what theme is he referring to and how does he think that the style doesn't fit the theme? Because, because clearly Tolkien had a plan for that. Now, you don't have to agree with his plan or think that his plan was successful, but he it, it was clearly there was intent behind all of that. Um, so it was the style doesn't fit the theme and the lack of human discrimination in depth or, uh, and that again, lack of human discrimination in depth, which the subject demanded is what it was. And that again, I, I don't know what he means by that. The subject. Okay. So the subject of fellowship of the ring and of the Lord of the Rings as a whole is ultimately how the choices ordinary people make affect the play out between good and evil in the world. Um, so that's a very high subject and you know, requires, I guess, a discrimination. Does he think that he goes too deep or not deep enough? <laughs> I, I'm really, I'm trying to understand. Right. Well, and this goes back to what we said earlier, like, have these people read the book? Um, yeah. Because again, it, it strikes me as the kind of criticism somebody would make who's not really paying deep attention to the story as it is. Uh, on both points. I mean, as you already pointed out with regard to the style, you know, there are multiple different styles and part of the contrast of those styles is itself in service of the theme, which necessarily relates to the ordinary interacting with extraordinary events. You know, that that's part of the theme of the book is the idea that you have small people who have to deal with big problems sometimes. And that, is represented very well, I think, in the contrast of the style of, you know, Three is Company versus the style of the Council of Elrond and, you know, the the trip down the Anduin River and everything else. I mean, you've got all of that going on, but then the, the human, this is one thing that I don't like, and a lot of, it's not just academia, but it seems to pop up a lot more in academia, which is, throwing words out there that sound good, but that ultimately don't mean a whole lot by themselves. So I'm kind of like you. It's like, what exactly does he mean by the lack of human discrimination in depth, which the subject demands? What, I mean, without more, it really is hard to tell what exactly he means. Because clearly Tolkien does have a discrimination of depth because he at one level is really good at describing really big things at a 30,000 foot view. And he's also really good at getting down right to the, you know, the, the single pixel level 
with, you know, four hobbits singing bath songs to each other. I mean, it's like, yeah. in what sense is depth lacking? I don't understand the criticism. <laughs> yeah. It's not, yeah, it's like you said, it sounds like the kind of thing that a, a professional book reviewer would say when he felt like he didn't really like a book, but he couldn't figure out why. And so he was like, oh, it's not, you know, something, something not good, too deep, not deep enough, lacks discrimination, could be more lucent and tightly plotted. You know, like things that, things that if you're reading this review and you haven't read the book or you've just read the book kind of in passing, you'd think, oh, yes, well, what a what an incisive comment. But then when you actually try and understand it, it, it doesn't. It signify <laughs> yeah it, does, it doesn't even fall apart there's just it evaporates there's nothing yeah there and it, presumably presumably he would uh you know perhaps he could give a more articulate defense if we had him on and he was you know defending his assertions personally possibly i i try to give everyone the benefit of the doubt even people who clearly seem to not be speaking with a great deal of wisdom yeah <laughs> Um, and in, in Edwin Muir's defense, before we rag him again later on, I will say that in, in response to the two towers, he did praise the ints, which a lot of other people criticized. So at least he recognized some of the good things that Tolkien put in the story. So let's not just totally ignore Edwin Muir as a complete ignoramus who knows nothing. Um, moving on, oh, this, is, this is one of the best ones. A Maurice Richardson, and I think this was in response to the full work, not just the fellowship, although I sadly forgot to note specifically on here. Uh, he said, adults of all ages unite against the infantilism invasion. Auden, meaning W.H. Auden, uh, the American mm -hmm. poet and friend of Tolkien, who very, very strongly endorsed the book. Auden has always been captivated by the pubescent world of the saga and the classroom. <laughs> this is again not a very concrete criticism uh but he's clearly he's clearly echoing what john Kerry said about the childishness of the book and he's also accusing it kind of vicariously through criticizing alden of being again pubescent he calls it the pubescent world of the saga and the classroom now just on, on its own terms, let's think about what the pubescent world of the saga is. Do you have any thoughts on that one? Um, it's I'm, I'm again. I'm I'm trying to come from a place of charity, um, <laughs> in all things. Increasingly difficult. <laughs> yes. So I I don't uh, see that a saga is necessarily pubescent, although I do suppose that when a young man or even a young woman hits a certain age, they become interested in sort of complex stories that typically revolve around some sort of coming of age, um, which you can easily find examples of that in, I guess, I, I mean, saga, I think is a, technically it would, you know, refer to a very specific kind of story, but we've taken it now in the more, in a more broad meaning to signify things that are just sort of long and full of action and maybe not so full of people sitting in rooms talking and um, more to do with fighting monsters and becoming heroic than, you know, moving on after your, yeah. Huh? Something more like Beowulf. Yeah. A lot like Beowulf. Yes. Um, or I'm thinking, you know, not technically sagas, more epics, but again, the terms are mostly used interchangeably, you know, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, um, the Iliad, things like that. And and there is, especially in uh, Britain, where classical education was still very much strongly a thing, you turn 11 or you turn 14, and all of a sudden, for a certain, again, a certain subset of kids and young adults, you kind of get caught up in this. And I think that's because it's a way to communicate truths about the human adult experience that um you know at, at you end you reach the end of childhood and you become very interested in those problems because you are going to have to start facing those problems yourself for the first time um so i guess pubescent world of the saga would just mean like interesting story with something useful to say 
might 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 appeal to people yeah well what's funny to me is to call assuming for sake of argument that he's referring to sagas in the technical sense of things like the odyssey the aeneid beowulf you know stories of that nature if that's what he's referring to it's really funny that he uses the word pubescent in connection with that because when those stories were made, those stories were intended for adult audiences. You know, those are not, again, going back to the, you know, what's a child story and what's not a child story. That's, you know, those were clearly not meant in that way. If he means something more like just a, you know, what you might call a child's adventure story, you know, maybe he's got something in in mind there specifically because, you know, there is something appealing about the adventure story to, like you say, adolescents or even younger. Uh, but to me, to rule that as, again, something childlike smacks of the same problem that John Kerry, John Kerry's criticism ran into, which is in what way is that necessarily child literature? Like, I mean, again, because of the way that sagas work they convey certain things that other stories don't like you were pointing out i mean some of them have something useful to say and tolkien of course had a lot to say specifically on the issue of beowulf he wrote the entire essay on the monsters and the critics criticizing the people who thought that beowulf was just kind of drivel it's like no you're missing the point people pay real attention to how these things worked in the minds of the people who wrote and listened to the stories so you know, that idea that the saga in either sense of the word is somehow something that's, you know, for the pubescent is again, just silly. And, and if, again, if he specifically means that in the way of, you know, traditional, you know, technical sagas, now he's even blending into like, you know, uh, chronological snobbery because now he's basically saying, well, we just know better than all those ancients who wrote about sagas. You know, we now know what really makes for adult literature. It's like, you know, maybe, maybe you're not as wise compared to your forebears as you think you are. And you should have a little more chronological humility. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, I think this actually was um, more of a problem at mid-century more obviously a problem uh, at mid-century than it maybe is now, although it's still definitely present. You don't have to look very hard at all. But this sort of belief, as you said, the snobbery, this idea that we know, you know, we modern humans have more sophistication. Our art is more sophisticated. Uh, so all of the art that precedes what we consider now to be fashionable and, you know, in line with modern sensibilities and tastes, which, of course, are superior and elevated because they came later in time because that you know logic works there just great um we don't need to examine that assumption at all later is better newer is better uh so yes there's this the idea that it wasn't quite fashionable um you know you could never get it published today and therefore it is it, it's a throwback it's a, a remnant of a simpler time when men weren't really men and didn't really have adult problems like you know for heaven's sake we have locomotives and newspapers now and all all poor Odysseus had was a boat you know he couldn't nearly have approached our level of sophisticated thought on the important issues of today and of course that's once once you say it um the argument just falls apart but the power lies in how many people believed and still do believe something very similar to that implicitly right yeah and that was that what, interestingly, that is one of the things that Tolkien and Lewis were working so hard at is is fighting against this idea of chronological yeah. snobbery, especially Lewis. I mean, Lewis, you know, because Lewis wrote so much that was not fiction, that was deliberately argumentative. He wrote specifically on the topic of like, guys, just because it's old doesn't mean it's not as good. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, so but Tolkien clearly had some of the same ideas. So but yeah, it's just it's one of those it's it 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 strikes me as that kind of an argument i don't know if that's what he means but i have a feeling that probably is certainly sounds like it uh now we return to edwin muir again and oh boy this is the one 
this is the one for Tol- where Tolkien writes a letter in response. It has one of my favorite lines in all of Tolkien's letters because he just comes out in all of his frustration. Uh, but Edwin Muir says, and this is after he's read the entire book. Uh, he says, all the characters are boys masquerading as adult heroes and will never come to puberty. So he's actually more critical than Maurice Richardson in that, you know, it's, they're not even pubescent yet. They're, they'll never come yes. to puberty. Hardly one of them knows anything about women. Now, before before I ask your comments, Tolkien in his letter, because everybody's going to want to know what the line was now that I've said it, he says, blast Edwin Muir in his delayed adolescence. He is old enough to know better. It might do him good to hear what women think of his knowing about women, especially as a test of being mentally adult. If he had an MA, I should nominate him for the professorship of poetry, a sweet revenge. Now, Tolkien, yeah. being the perfect gentleman, knows how to put somebody down in the most polite way possible. But <laughs> Yes, I would like to nominate you for a promotion. Yes. <laughs> That's how much I hate you. Yeah. Um, yes, but, and, um, and on, Tolkien on could Tolkien. sling it. On top of Tolkien's own reply, do you have anything you'd like to add in terms of the prepubescent nature of characters and their knowledge about women? And you, yeah. of course, being a woman, as opposed to Edwin Muir being a man, you would probably know better than he would. Yeah, it's a little bit of an interesting... I mean, Tolkien's response touches on this a little bit. I mean, does Edwin Muir think that he knows about women? You know, uh, what... what? A lot of men, you know, on the internet claim to know a lot about women, and the more they claim to know about women, the, the less they seem to be, have, like, actually spent time with living women. You know, the kind that, like, breathe and talk and have ideas. Um, and Tolkien, of course, had, you know, a famous long marriage with his wife, whom he loved. And um, it wasn't, you know, didn't have a marriage that was free of problems. They had to work through their conflicts just like any uh, any other couple would. And he had a daughter that he loved very dearly because she, he put her through school as well as his three sons um, and wrote her Christmas letters long past the date that he would have been obliged to do so. I think she was like 12 and he was still taking the time to sit down and craft her like really lovely father Christmas letters to wake up to. Um, and he worked very closely with a, several women in academia. Um, this is, I mean, this is how The Hobbit got published, is one of his colleagues, I believe, had read it and had forwarded on to someone else um, who was in publishing. So uh, I've kind of gone and talked myself into a bit of a circle here, but Tolkien actually spent time with several women, um, engaging with them intellectually and domestically. And I believe the conclusion he reached is that women are essentially humans. <laughs> and 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 a story about humans may appeal to humans um so and I'm, I'm not saying necessarily that there's nothing to examine or critique in portrayals of women and femininity in middle earth it's it's interesting um a lot of people get sort of polarized on the issue before they've really given it a lot of thought and research i think unfortunately because it is it's you know it's not a it's not perfect but it's a lot more complex and a lot more um, nuanced in treatment of women than I think a lot of people assume at first. Um, and then as for the characters knowing nothing about women, again, it goes back to that idea that, you know, do we necessarily have to have every, every character be in a love triangle to make the fiction compelling and worth reading? Most people would say no at this point. Um, and then again, you know, a lot of the characters have relationships with Again, human women. I use the word human to mean like sentient creature, obviously. Um, right. Galadriel is not a human. Arwen's kind of like on the fence. Um, <laughs> and they <laughs> gets knocked off one side or the other. Um, Eowyn is the big one, of course. Aragorn and Eowyn have a relationship that is cognizant of the fact that he is a man and she is a woman and she has a crush on him and he can't return her love, but also extends on to deal with things like duty and experience and authority and you know things that aren't don't just hinge on the fact that oh well you know they might they might kiss someday or something you know <laughs> they, they relate on a level that's um not necessarily purely romantic or erotic but 
Aragorn seems to know pretty well what Eowyn is and might be thinking, both as a woman and just as a person in her specific situation. So, uh, yeah, that's at least one of them knows something about women. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, too, as far as this criticism goes, I'm not sure exactly where he's getting his data for this. And this is kind of like one of your criticisms of the earlier critiques was, you know, like, what's the... Where, what, what exactly are we talking about here? Because if you think about it, how many of the characters that we really get up close with end up in anything like a romantic relationship? And we've got Faramir, who ends up marrying, marrying Eowyn. Aragorn marries Arwen. Sam marries Rosie. And then Merry and Pippin marry people that we never even really hear about in the main story. We just find, about, find out about them in the appendices. Um, so... It's like, in what sense are all of these people prepubescent and have no, no knowledge of women? We don't know anything about their knowledge of women because they don't really interact with women for the most part, at least not at a romantic level. And even Aragorn, who interacts with Arwen, and Sam, who interacts with Rosie, that's all kind of off stage. None of that happens in the main story. So the idea that we actually even have data to go on here is kind of weak. The only really good data point we have is Eowyn, who interacts primarily with Aragorn and Faramir. And even her interactions with Faramir are kind of glided over to an extent. Like, they have an initial meeting where they exchange a few words, and then they get together a lot that we don't see in detail, but we know they must have conversations. And then they have their final conversation where Faramir finally turns her around, and she accepts his love for her and you know, they decide that they're going to get married. But like, even there, you know, to the extent that we can see that Faramir understands something of her nature and, and her thought processes, we also don't see all the buildup that happened before that. So primarily what we see is Faramir interacting with Eowyn as another human being who has desires, hangups, you know, all these things that he has to work through to get her to end up, you know, accepting him for what he wants and to let go of her basically death wish for not being accepted by Aragorn. And of course, Aragorn is even more so dealing with her in exactly that kind of way because Aragorn is trying not to deal with her on a romantic level. So it's like they're prepubescent. How? Like, I don't even understand what the criticism is about because we have so little data to go on. I mean, the closest thing I can maybe think of is that Gimli is like kind of awestruck by Galadriel, but even there, it's like, it's clearly, it's almost, it's almost obvious that what Tolkien is doing there is recreating something like an Arthurian court chivalry because he sets up the whole dynamic between Gimli and Eomer where they almost fight each other over it. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, just, yeah, I just, I don't understand where the criticism even comes from. And again, I think you mentioned this earlier. um, What time period are you, is one most likely to sit around talking and obsessing endlessly about the opposite sex and, you know, Chelsea looked at me in the lunchroom for 3.5 seconds. What does that mean? You know, like studying women or women doing the studying boys and being like, oh, they blinked five times. Like, (laughs) what what does Cosmo say about that? Like, that is adolescence. And it's like, it's great and it's fun. But after a while, you realize, again, that, you know, there are boys and there are girls, there are men and there are women. And you can enter into a relationship with one of them potentially someday, but that's not going to be, you know, that's going to be a part of your life if you're lucky and not your whole life. You know, you're also going to have other interesting things going on and other responsibilities that you need to take on, such as in this case, you know, saving the world from an incarnate evil demigod um, might be, you know, might take precedence a little bit over oh well, I've got a girl back home kind of a thing. A so, I, <laughs> A little bit. Yeah, just you think, yeah, perhaps slightly higher on the priority totem pole. Um, So, yeah, the idea that because the characters don't seem to engage or spend a lot of time worrying about 
the opposite sex or being in a relationship or women or anything like that um the assumption that that's because they don't know about women and that a really you know a proper red-blooded adult story that dealt with adult themes and mature content would of course have just like body parts everywhere um <laughs> or at least verbal just, foreplay yeah yeah or yeah or you know talking about it kind of obsessing about it around the campfire like can you imagine they're they're on a quest to save the world they're probably all going to die many of them do die um so maybe they yeah maybe they don't need to take a break to like work on their dating strategy yeah so let's see man i still have a lot <laughs> um I'm trying to think here. I mean, we've been at it for a good while now. Should we maybe cut it short here and save some more for future videos? Yeah, that might be that might be a good plan. Okay. Uh, I have to go let my rage simmer down for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, there's more Edwin Mueller, by the way. Oh, I'm sure. I, I look forward to it. Poor yeah. Tolkien. You so, put up with a lot. Yeah, well, and, you know, it, it, it's so much fun to pick on Edwin Muir because Tolkien loved to pick on him, too. So, uh, but yeah, we'll go ahead and call that a video for now. We'll um, probably do at least one more of these because it it's really interesting to look at the criticisms of Tolkien. And like you said, a lot of them, like, really do boil down to, did they read the book? Like... <laughs> Yeah, like carefully, or did they just move their eyes across the words? Right, and not really look at it. And, you know, I mean, for a first read, there certainly is a lot to take in. And it's, mm -hmm. nobody's gonna, you know, say that you can get everything out of The Lord of the Rings the first time you read it. And certainly going back to that whole idea of the, the work being shapeless, you know, the more I read it, the more shape I see. Because you yeah. start to pick up on parallels and, you know, the ways that the, you know, the story all hangs together and, and things you don't notice the first time around. But if your job is to be a literary critic, you'd think you would spend a little more time really thinking about it than that. <laughs> or that you would be able to tell that, you know, look, I may not have gotten all of the meaning out of this, but it's clearly there. You can see that there's an argument, again, even if you just read Fellowship of the Ring, you could see that there's, you know, a real attempt to seriously treat important themes. Right. Um, the other thing that I have to like give some of these guys a pass on is um, there had really never been anything like Lord of the Rings. True. So like even today, a groundbreaking fantasy novel has at least we have a frame of reference for how to deal with that and how these stories are told and what sort of tropes they might make use of. Um, but up until that point, you know, people are looking at Lord of the Rings and they're like, so, I mean, what is this? Is this some sort of like historical is this meant to be like a dream sequence you know what's going on here uh and that i think probably hindered a lot of people maybe unfairly possibly <laughs> or maybe again maybe they just didn't didn't have the time to spend yeah well and i suspect partially because there had been so little in the way of fantasy for so long like you'd have to go back to you know shakespeare and you know Edmund Spencer and stuff like that to get anything like, you know, fantasy in the way that we think of it today, because since that time, so much of it had been just, you know, either historical or, you know, kind of like Jane Austen realistic, if not historical or that kind of stuff. I mean, you do have things along the way, like Frankenstein and, you know, things that are definitely outside of, you know, normal real life, but still not really fantasy in, in that way. So the fact that this comes along and then looks like so many things that, and to go back to the whole issue of it being a child story, so many of the things that they would have been familiar with would have been nursery rhymes and nursery tales involving goblins and elves and fairies and you know, so they're probably naturally going to latch onto the window dressing and mm -hmm. mistake it for the real frame of the house. Yeah. Uh, so there's probably some of that going on too. Uh, but at any rate, we're going to call it here. And like I said, probably we'll eventually do one or two more of these because this is kind of fun. Um, but 
Yeah, definitely check out Girl Next Gondor's channel. She's got some really great stuff. I especially liked her series on magic in Middle-earth. If you're really interested in getting deep into that topic, definitely check that out. She's also got two videos on underappreciated women in Tolkien's works. And I know Tolkien's works pretty well, but she even caught me by surprise on a couple of them. So, you know, I mean, like I, I knew all the characters, but like I hadn't thought of them as deeply as you had, obviously. So there's definitely a lot of great content on Girl Next Gondor's channel. Definitely check it out. Get her above a thousand subs, people. Do it. Um, and we will see you the next time we do this. And I'll see you the next time on my channel for a regular video. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. And this has been Girl Next Gondor, my first ever guest, and hopefully won't be the last time. Yeah, I look forward to coming back and destroying more critics with you. It's been, been an honor and a pleasure. All right. Namariye, everybody. <laughs>